the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Well, it's it's a funny story because there are two guys on the record who I used to play with in Boston, Don Elias and Juma Santos. They played congas. They were appearing at the jazz workshop in Boston. And I went to hear Juma. And I'm, I'm just a kid, you know, and I go, I wanted to hear Miles. I saw I go in like I know someone in the band, you know, like I was hot shit. This is Mark Gould. Though he may not have been hot shit at the time the story took place, he's certainly done well for himself since. He's the principal trumpet player in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra from 1974 all the way to 2003. He's currently the director of the New York Trumpet Ensemble and on the faculty of Juilliard and on the faculty of the Manhattan School of Music for Trumpet. You want to talk about trumpet players, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better guy to talk to. And you want stories? He's got them. So when I saw Juma there and I said, man, this is great, blah, blah, after the gig, Miles just fired him. He said to Juma, he said, Man, I thought you were going to make this shit funky. And he didn't enough, and he fired him, you know? And and I used to hear Miles Davis play on Lenny's on the Turnpike outside Boston. And I'll never forget this time. It was like um, he had just brought Chick Corea on the band. And Herbie Hancock was also playing piano at that time, two of them together. And we went to hear the set. And Miles spent most of the time at the bar just watching the band and then in the middle of the set i'll never forget this went up on the bandstand picked up his trumpet and played one note you know this long sort of loud note and the music turned on a dime and went to another place and i'm thinking how the fuck did that happen You know, he made a record called The Sorcery. It's real sorcery. You know, I asked Chick Corea, what's it like being in the band? Because he had just joined the band, I think, maybe two weeks before. He said, well, um, Miles hasn't spoken to me yet. (laughs) For two whole weeks. 
Miles hasn't spoken to me yet because Miles would put musicians together and he gets very, very best. He knew he had great taste and he knew who to call. And that's how he would roll. If something he didn't like, he was absolutely all over it. You know, he knew what he wanted to hear. Very, very clear. And since you got in touch with me and I re-listened to Bitches Bride and listened to it in years, and I'm just struck by that. The extraordinary players behind Miles in this. So obviously there's no rehearsal, no charts, no nothing. And it's brilliant. Absolutely the whole time amazing the way they play together. Absolutely amazing. the opus season eight episode two of course brought to you by consequence sound and sony legacy recordings as usual and as usual i am your host Andy bothwell i gotta say before we get off into this this is the fifth season that i've made this podcast and something i didn't think about going into it all something that it's easily become my favorite thing about making the opus so what a damn delight it is to hear people speak so rapturously about the artists they love. Every month, I take on a new album. Every month, I get to speak to a whole new crop of people who just love the hell out of the artists and the album that I'm covering. And it never goes tiresome. It always brings me joy. And even with an artist that I think I know a pretty good amount about, like Miles, I always learn some new way to appreciate their greatness. You know, there's always that thing that a casual fan may not notice. But that thing that's at the core of the admiration from the real devotees. It's like what Mark Gould was saying there about what made Bitches Brew so special. It's not just Miles himself, but it's the extraordinary players behind Miles. And that was something I heard again and again and again from everyone I interviewed for this season. You know, of course, they would talk about his playing, talk about his ability to improvise, talk about the way he changed styles so many times over the course of his life. But the point they all hit on, the one they felt like they were really trying to drive home to me, was what an incredible band leader he was. And they talk about this in almost mystical tones. His ability to assemble the greatest players in the world, and not just get them and their egos to all jive and play well together. That is a feat in and of itself, but they speak about Miles like he was this Svengali that would get the greatest musicians in the world all in one room and somehow get them to play better than they ever had before. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Because when you talk to the people that really love Bitches Brew, the people that really know Miles Davis, they all agree then it's not just Miles that makes this record so special. It's the people behind Miles. It's the ingredients he collected that provide the real flavor in this brew.
I mean, that's the genius of Miles Davis, man. The greatest gift, I think, as a band leader is just knowing who to get in the room, just knowing who to call. This is Ben Williams. He's a bassist and a band leader and a composer. When I caught up with him, he had just finished his tour with Kamasi Washington, but he's played with everyone. Wynn Marsalis, George Benson, Shaka Khan, Pharrell. He won a Grammy in 2013 for a record he made with Pat Metheny, and his own work, especially his latest album, I'm a Man, is super exciting stuff. He, I think better than anyone that I talked to, really broke down how significant it was for Miles to assemble the team that he had for Bitches Brew. You know, I, I knew who the musicians were. I mean, so, so at this point, I, you know, I was already into, like, Chicory and, you know, Jack Dijonette, but I had heard all the other stuff they the more straight-ahead stuff they had played on. So to hear them in this context was really interesting. To hear all my, a lot of my heroes, first of all, own one record in one room. Everybody who was great playing together and somehow it just created this, like, really kind of tripped out, like, tapestry. Jazz is a collaborative genre by its nature. There's no shortage of overlap between bands and projects players swapping between different albums but up to this point people weren't building bands like this certainly not ones that were this big with this many big names all of ben williams's heroes i'm sure the big band era had a full bandstand but that was not something you could call a tripped out tapestry that was jazz with a capital j and this was something else so up until the era in the late 60s, people were still mostly in pretty standard arrangements. Quintets, quartets, trios. Well, Miles Built for Bitches Brew was something entirely different. And the people that made up that tripped out tapestry? Well, I'll just, I'll just give you a quick rundown. Okay. Whew. You got Joe Zawano on the left electric piano. He started out with Cannonball Adderley, one of the guys that invented jazz fusion and was voted best electric keyboardist 28 times by the readers of Downbeat magazine. And on the right electric piano, you got Chick Corea. He's written several songs that are considered to be standards in jazz. He went on to start the legendary fusion group Return to Forever and is considered to be one of the greatest electric keyboardists in the history of jazz. And then you got Larry Young, who is the third electric pianist. Yes, that's three electric pianos who's another groundbreaker in jazz fusion and recorded a very famous jam session with a guy we like to call Jimi Hendrix before Miles came along and scooped him up for Bitches Brew. John McLaughlin is on electric guitar, and he's widely considered to be the greatest guitar player in the world at the time and has been described by Jeff Beck and Pat Metheny, both pretty goddamn good guitar players themselves, as the greatest guitarist alive. Dave Holland was only 22 at the time. He's on double bass. Miles heard him opening up for Bill Evans and told him he wanted him in his band. Gave him three days to get from the UK to New York for a gig with Miles at Count Basses Club in 1968. And then he got Harvey Brooks, who's on electric bass. He started out playing with a guy named Robert Zimmerman, who a lot of y'all may know as Bob Dylan. Then he went to play for a band called The Doors before he got poached by Miles. Benny Maupin is on bass clarinet. He was in several different amazing bands with Herbie Hancock, including the legendary Headhunters band, and then went on to play with Meat Beat Manifesto later in life. That one blew my mind. And then there's Wayne Shorter on soprano sax. I could go on at length about Wayne Shorter, but I was just going to leave you with this fact. Wayne Shorter has won 11 Grammys. 11 goddamn Grammys. We haven't even got to the drums yet. You still with me? Because we got Lenny White on the left drum set. He was only 19 when Miles recruited him. He was self-taught, 
And shortly after he was old enough to buy cigarettes, he was in Miles' band playing alongside Jack DeJanette, who was on the right drum set, who's one of the most influential jazz drummers of the 20th century. He's played with Bill Evans, Sun Ra, Keith Jarrett, John Coltrane, everybody. That is the core band. Three pianos, two basses, two drummers, one soprano sax, one bass clarinet, and Miles Damn Davis on the trumpet. That is a band. And we haven't even gotten to Bill Cobham or Erto Moreira, who sat in percussion on the last song, Feo. Or Mark Gould's homies, Don Elias and Juma Santos, who played congas and percussion on Miles Runs the Voodoo Down. For jazz fans, that is an impressive list. And sure, a few of them were stars coming into this session. But a lot of those guys weren't big names at the time. But they all became big names after. Because Miles saw greatness in them, even when others hadn't. And even if none of those names mean anything to you, even if you don't know anything about jazz, Ben Williams is a way of breaking it down that I think almost anybody can understand. The amount of music that individually Chikorita can play just by himself is outstanding. And, you know, having multiple drummers, but now it's just like, you know, having Lenny White and Jack DeJanet, that's like... That's like putting Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and LeBron and Gobi on the same team. Yeah. He's comparing the band Miles Davis's symbol for Bitches Brew to the gold medal winning 1992 United States men's Olympic basketball team. The greatest basketball team ever assembled, perhaps the greatest sports team ever assembled. I'm talking Magic Johnson, Charles Barkley, Chris Mullen, Christian Leitner, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Clyde Drexler, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewan, and David Robinson, collectively known as the Dream Team, if, through the miracle of time travel, I guess, that team could also include Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. That isn't even the Dream Team anymore, that's the... The all-time greats team on the video game that you only let your neighbor's little brother use because he's too young to be able to compete with any normal team. Miles Davis didn't assemble the dream team for Bitches Brew. Miles Davis used a damn cheat code. But what makes it even more incredible is getting back to the thing we brought up at the beginning. Because it's not just Miles' ability to recruit all that talent. It's what he does with it that's the real magic. Obviously, on paper, that sounds incredible, but... In reality, you know, that could be a lot of chaos and, you know, not harmonious, but they really made it work. You know, having the, uh, the foresight to imagine what this might turn into, you know, it's not like he just knew, you know, he just see it was that, it was that risk, but that was his Midas touch, you know, like he just knew who to put together without a plan. I don't know anybody else who could really pull that off other than Miles. On the last season of the Opus, we talked about the great pains and lengths Simon and Garfunkel and Roy Halley went to in writing, arranging, recording, and producing the album Bridge Over Trouble Water. They were obsessive over detail. They polished every single corner of that album until it shined. 
They spent months and months on that record. I mean, they recorded over 100 hours of tape with a boxer alone across several states in several different recording studios and the chapel at Columbia University. A lot of great rock and pop records are like this. They take time. I mean, the season before that, London Calling, is the same way. Bitches Brew was recorded in three days. <laughs> three days. This is what you get when you use a cheat code, man. Three days. Simon and Garfunkel are all-time greats. That is undeniable. But they ain't the cheat code. They ain't even the dream team. They're the 95 Bulls, man. They're up there with the greatest of all time. Maybe, you know, you, you could argue the greatest of all time and, and no one would look at you crazy. But what Miles built for Bitches Brew was on a whole nother level. And it had to be. Because Miles didn't just expect your best. He needed you to be better than your best. He needed you to play beyond yourself. Because he was in the process of transcending as well. Like we covered in the first episode, Miles was always looking towards the future. And you could hear that in the albums leading up to Bitches Brew. Records like In a Silent Way and Fil de Kilimanjaro. He was really starting to stretch his legs into his electric period. The band's growing on each of those records. He's experimenting with songwriting process. He's borrowing and learning from different cultures and genres and artistic movements. He is building. He is building up to Bitches Brew. So by the time he and the band come into the studio in August of 1969, there's no sheet music with the songs laid out neatly for everyone. There's no demos that were rough track months before they're trying to replicate. There's only a few parts to a few songs that a few of the guys had honed on the road. And the rest is in Miles' head. And he transmitted it to the band with the most bare instructions. Literally, sometimes, only a few notes written on a scrap of paper. Given with some very loose guidance. And the rest was just left up to the band. To come up with, together, through improvisation. Now you see why he needed that exact band. Because just great players wouldn't do. Great players who could play the right notes, those people come a dime a dozen. There's one thing that I will say over and over and over again. Talent is cheap. He needed more than that. He needed people who could listen to each other and respond and react. And at the same time, think for themselves and have the confidence to attack. You know, it's like that story that Mark Gould told at the beginning of the episode. Miles is watching his own band play from the bar. And then he stepped up on stage, played one single note, and the whole song instantly shifted around him. It turned on a dime. Miles was moving away from the old structures and hierarchies in jazz. You know, where the band would play a melody for the soloist to just you know, float on, like a leaf on the river. He was stripping that all down. Everything was to be in service of the ensemble. The soloist wasn't just a leaf floating on the river anymore. The soloist was a damn boulder being dropped in the river and redirecting the entire flow. I think it was Jack DeJunette who once said to me that the way Miles played, he didn't play for himself. He played to make everybody sound better. This is Paul Tingen, a Dutch music writer who has a monthly column for Sound on Sound magazine, but he has also written the book on Miles in this era and beyond. Seriously, it's called Miles Beyond. And the research that he's done for this book, the people that he talks to, it's nuts. And if you're interested in Miles' work as a musician, this is probably the best book that you could read. So the first thing is that so he got away completely from this idea of the, the soloist soloing and then everybody else just serving the soloist. So he changed it and said the soloist also had to serve the ensemble. 
it was definitely a departure from what he was doing with second grade quintet, where it was very much like, you know, you start with a theme, first solo, second solo, third solo, theme, and finished. And he completely broke with all these conventions. So it was, it was in every single sense a, a complete experiment. The trumpet playing is not designed to be fast or virtuoso or whatever. It's just it makes statements. It gets feedback from behind. It makes statements. It gets feedback from behind. It follows and leads at the same time. Now that that is something different, right? You know, a lot of musicians. The more famous they get, you know, the more power they have, the tighter they squeeze. They become control freaks, the studio tyrants. But Miles is going in the opposite direction on Bitches Brew. And you make no mistake, he is a star at that time. And he's still giving his band the freedom to run because he trusted them. And so he let them explore because Miles didn't believe in failure. He very famously said, it's not the note you play that's the wrong note. It's the note you play after that makes it right or wrong. People, they worked out things themselves, you know, like he led by example. I mean, Herbie Hancock tells an anecdote when he was just arrived at the second great quintet. The second great quintet was Miles' band before Bitches Brew, for which a young Herbie Hancock was the pianist. As a five piece of some of the greatest players of the mid 60s, which followed up the first great quintet, which was a five piece of some of the greatest players of the late 50s. You sensing a pattern here? I told you, Miles, incredible band leader. And so they're going through this thing, right? You have, as I said, in those era, they had the changes, right? Specific chords, and then Wayne Shorter and Miles would solo over that, and Herbie would get a solo. So Herbie was comping behind Miles playing a solo. And Herbie said suddenly he played a note, or a chord that was probably about the worst chord you could play at that point. And he just arrived at the band, and he'd cringe, and, he's, and for a moment he stopped, you know? And in that split second... Miles had already played another note that made his chord right. And Herbie said that for two whole cycles, he couldn't play because his whole world inwardly collapsed. How he'd looked at music, you know, there was no right, there was no wrong. There was just reacting to what's happening in the present moment. And and so that was a something by Miles where he taught by example. And you also have to say, of course, somebody like um, Herbie Hancock had the capacity to, to have this realization and from then on approach music in a completely different way. You see, this is what someone like me, who knew a little bit about Miles and Bitches Brew going into this, couldn't possibly understand or appreciate without talking to someone like Paul Tingen. This is why I love doing this. And this is why people like Paul Tingen and Mark Gould and Lauren Schoenberg and Ben Williams and Greg Grella and Daedalus and Herbie freaking Hancock all speak with such reverence for Miles because he didn't just make great music. He taught you to think differently about the way you make music. And you can hear that on Bitches Brew because Miles isn't just making music there. He's hypothesizing and philosophizing and exploring and teaching and learning all throughout those sessions. Probably at least half my book was about him as a band leader. Because he was a genius at being a band leader. Miles has had a way with musicians. He picked them up. I mean, if you look at the list of people on Bitches Brew, okay, there were a few stars, you know, people who were already stars, uh, Wayne Shorter and, and, you know, Joe Zawin was already a successful artist in his own right. But a lot of these people were not yet super well known. 
And if you look at the amount of people, uh, Chick Corea, John McLaughlin, David Holland, uh, Jack DeJanet, Billy Cobham, Rita Marira, the amount of people who became famous through playing with Miles, you, you have to say he was an absolute genius in picking up musicians with potential. And then it was like sink or swim. So it was looking for musical talent, but also, you know, the musician has had the right mindset. You know, lots of people don't realize that it's not just about chops, how well you can play. It's about how you hold yourself. I mean, Miles used to say that he could see whether somebody was a good musician, not purely from them taking their instrument out of their case. And I believe that. You know, you, you look at somebody's body language, you look at their focus, you, you look at how they stand, how they, how they conduct themselves. And so, and then, I mean, Jack to Jeanette, another example, somebody he kind of, you know, really raised. And Jack used to say it was like a kind of magic cauldron. Miles has had an, an incredible capacity for getting the best out of musicians. I would guess McLaughlin wouldn't mind me going on record with this, but many years later, when I said to him, you know, John, if I say to you that, you know, when you played with Miles, that that really maybe was the best playing of your career, would you agree? Or am I in risk of you slamming the phone down <laughs> on me? <laughs> and there was a long silence at the end of the phone. And I thought, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and then John said, no, I think you're right. That John he's talking about is John McLaughlin, the guitarist on Bitches Brew. The guitarist that Jeff Beck called the greatest guitarist alive. McLaughlin agreed, after a long pause, that the work he did on Bitches Brew, the way he played, was the greatest he had ever played, before or since. Which implies that for as great as John McLaughlin is, that there is a deeper pool of talent in him that he was only ever able to access through Miles. That is what makes these sessions so special. That is what makes Miles more than just a great musician. So he had this magic way of being like a Zen teacher and getting people to focus and be in the present moment. There's a story that I love, and John McLaughlin used to say this saying, you know, when he came in and he was like the fastest guitarist on the planet at the time, so he's very on a show with his chops, right? And then Miles, at some stage, walking up to him and said, uh, play as if you don't know how to play the guitar. And here you come say this at the time, the most technical guitarist on the planet, play as if you don't know how to play the guitar. And what John McLaughlin, of course, did, he managed to find a way of playing rhythm guitar and lead guitar at the same time. But if you think about it, in a way, everybody was doing that in this band. The bass player, the, the drummer, everybody was was kind of to some degree improvising and the bass clarinet is weaving itself in and out of the ensemble almost like a rhythm instrument. In a way, it also harks back to the early days of jazz, like 1920s, where everybody was improvising. This very stylized thing where the rhythm section goes through the changes while the soloists solo, that became the blueprint for jazz in the, in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then 60s. And... By this stage, Miles was like, okay, no more of that. But Bitches Brew, he was totally looking in a completely different direction. It was, everybody had to some degree freedom to do what they wanted, a lot of listening involved. He gave the most minimal of material possible to the musicians, sometimes just two or three notes written on a piece of paper, and then see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> 
three days straight. Only three sessions in 1969. That's what they did. They got together just to see what would happen. Miles gave the band a few notes to run with. And for three days straight, they all ran wild together. In fact, if you rewind this podcast back just a a little bit to about 27 minutes and 22 seconds, you can actually hear Miles giving the band directions. And you can hear what we've been talking about this whole time. The way they respond. Right at 27 minutes and 22 seconds in this podcast, or around 7 minutes 50 seconds in the actual song, Bitches Brew. It's right in that breakdown. You can hear Miles' raspy voice say, John. And then the whole song changes. It's incredible. He is, of course, talking to the guitarist, John McLaughlin, giving him a cue to take a solo. But what's great is without hesitation, the entire band rises up to meet him. This record is littered with moments like that. This is why these sessions are so incredible. But if there is one thing we've learned in five seasons of the Opus, it takes a lot more than a great band and some incredible sessions to make a great album. There is always someone behind the scenes. Whether it's an engineer like Roy Halley on Bridge Over Troubled Water or a producer like Guy Stevens on London Calling, there is always someone else who never picks up an instrument and nevertheless leaves their mark on a great record all the same. For Bitches Brew, that man was the producer, Tio Macero. You know, if they had me for Tio Macero, there would have been these endless things lying in the vaults that sounded somehow interesting. We're still with Paul Tingen here. To his eternal credit, somehow recognized what was going on and knew what was, was, okay, take a bit of this, take a bit of that, take a bit of so-and-so, put it together and created some degree of structure and then it came out as a record. So while Miles and his band are pushing each other and exploring and improvising for three days straight, Tio's in the studio right there with him recording everything. When those three sessions are all said and done, Miles leaves Tio with all that audio, hours and hours of audio, just leaves him with it and lets him work, lets him take what he heard, lets him take what he witnessed and make it into an album. As I understand it from Tio himself and also from people uh, around who, who, who watched the situation, Miles had very, very little interest in the whole thing of editing and, and all the studio trickery. You know, he was a live musician. So he basically said to Tio, you make something nice out of this. He distrusted Tio completely. You see the pattern forming? Miles gets the best people. He builds the best team. He puts them all in a room together and just lets them do what they do best. It's trust. What a beautiful thing. It's so damn rare to see an artist have that kind of relationship with his band, or even more rare with his producer, that he can just let them work and trust that the results will be great. And the results were great. What Tio did for Bitches Brew as an album is just as important as what Miles did. Miles put that band together. Miles got them to play out of their minds. And Tio 
took the hours and hours of tape from those sessions and shaped it into the brilliant album we have today. And this wasn't done on a computer, in Pro Tools or Ableton Live or even on, you know, some digital workstation. This was recorded on two-inch tape. So if you want to make an edit back then, you had to physically cut the audio tape with a razor blade. So like we have a lot of modern recording technology nowadays that allows us to make really incredible changes to music. I want to bring back Daedalus, who was with us in the first episode. And in case you forgot, incredible electronic musician and producer and also an instructor at the Berklee College of Music. But can you imagine recording on two-inch tape? And this is, you know, audio cassette tape, but larger. And if you've ever messed with that stuff, it's it has a weight to it, but it's still, it's just a very razor-thin, flat-medium and the idea that you would go through and with a razor blade make cuts on that tape, on, on a take, you know, you can copy it off to elsewhere. And so it isn't necessarily the most destructive act. But in the end, you are taking like an actual blade to the audio and, and by precisely finding that moment, that one little like between notes, between breaths, between takes, and you, you cut and you amend and you literally are taping those two halves of tape together to make a new edit. Can you imagine how harrowing that is? If you cut in the wrong spot, you are you know, literally putting a sword through miles on some sort of take or something, right? You have to, in the most precise fashion, find that, that exact moment and then find another exact moment to amend it to. And with just the strength of a bit of scotch tape, in essence, put those things together and, 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 and thus making a new take, but then you're running that take subsequently through effect and... You know, things that are happening in the studio that might be loud and, and cantankerous are, are having their own say, and you have to wrestle with that. So it's like, sure, Miles is trusting the artists around them and, and, and setting them forth. But with that kind of presence of mind to know that there are edits possible, that, the, that they are making bold edits and having the confidence in that team to make it sound good, make it sound whole, and to the point where we just don't know exactly where all the edits are. It's... They were so good, like the height of their game, all these artists at like the top of their ability. And and not just from their playing, but also from the technical ability of the team around them. It's incredible. And that really gets to the core of it. You could focus just on Miles, the way he plays on Bitches Brew, what he does on this record, because it is great. You could just talk about the band and the level at which they're operating as individuals and as a unit. I mean, you could literally spend days on Tio Macero and his engineers and the way they edited this record and affected it and how that was literally decades ahead of its time. Proto-electronic music, but instead shaping the music with a razor blade and tape, the way everyone makes music in garage band now. But the sum of all those parts still doesn't manage to add up to the incredible whole album we have today. I've got these two anecdotes from Zavanel and Benny Maupin, who both, when they heard the album, didn't know what it was. And this is George Grello, who you might recognize from the first episode. He wrote the 33 and a third book on Bitches Brew. I mean, Zavanel himself said after the session, he told Miles that he didn't really dig what they were doing. But then he was in the Columbia office and he heard this you know, this music playing. And he's like, what is this fantastic record? And the, they told him, well, that you're playing this. This is Bitches Brew. And Benny Maupin heard it on the radio driving in his car and he 
and he loved it. He pulled over to the side of the road to listen. And then the DJ came on and said, Miles Davis is in Bitches Brew. And the thing, he was like, wow, that is, that's what we made. Ah, I love that. I had to put that story in there because it feels somehow reassuring to me. You know, because when I listen to Bitches Brew, I, I still don't necessarily even really know what I'm hearing. I just know that I like it. You know, even when I talk to experts about it, they can't really put their finger on what makes it so great. You know, they can talk about the parts, but there's something else that's bigger than that that they can't quite nail. They certainly can't explain why it's so damn popular. So, I like knowing that even for the guys that were in the session, it's still unrecognizable. Almost like a fever dream. And that... I think that's the thing about Bitches Brew. It's like, no matter if you're hearing it for the first time, or you're hearing it for the thousandth time, or even if you play it on the damn record, it, it doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard before. It's so strange, and it's so exotic and unfamiliar. And that's the magic of Miles Davis, isn't it? He pulls performances out of artists that they didn't even know they were there. He sees things in musicians that no one else sees. He builds these teams of people that could never work in the hands of anyone else. And then through that, produces something that the world has never heard before or since. You know, it's been 50 years since Bitches Brew came out. It's shaped and influenced thousands and thousands of artists across every genre. So many people have tried to rip off Bitches Brew so many times. And still, nothing sounds like Bitches Brew. And that is why, even after a half a century, it still sits on a pedestal that no one can touch. We're going to get into that next week for the final episode of the season. The enduring legacy of Bitches Brew and how this opus is still, after five decades, shaping, impacting music and our culture today. But now I want to thank my guests, Mark Gould from Juilliard and your trumpet ensemble, writer George Grella for coming back, Paul Tingen from Sound on Sound. Seriously, if you want to learn everything about Miles as a musician from this era, check out his book, Miles Beyond. It is, it's like a Bible. I also want to thank Ben Williams for joining us and Daedalus for joining us again. Be sure to look up their music because both those guys, they're the real deal. They're operating on another level. They're doing really cool stuff. I think you'll dig it. Consequence of Sound, still running that contest where you can win the insane box set full of every single CD Miles has ever released. So be sure to head on over to consequencesound.net, throw your hat in the ring before you miss your chance. As always, like and subscribe, tell your friends, tell everyone you know to listen to the Opus. It seems like this um, lockdown, social distancing, all that... It's uh, going on longer than shorter. 
So we got nothing but time, right? Time for podcasts, time for great albums. So if you haven't, uh, go back and listen to the old seasons of the Opus. I'm really proud of those too. And uh, take some time. Listen to Bitches Brew, front to back. It'll blow your damn mind. Thanks for listening, y'all. Consequence of Sound, Tony Legacy Recordings. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast.